0: and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. I forgot to mention also that if you're visiting um, and you don't know like how the child care works, there's something in the back here, this fold-out that tells you. And there's these baskets up here for children who might want to get these to help them through the, um, the sermon. So we, um, we're talking about the, the life of King David in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel this fall. And so far we have concentrated on Saul and David and their relationship. Saul is the king and David is the shepherd and uh, he is um, anointed by God. David is. Um, David is, uh, also hires a musician in Saul's court to help Saul when he is um, having these uh, kind of fits of mania. And David plays the guitar and it helps to soothe Saul. So that's, and then last week we saw how Saul is very jealous of David because he sees that David is growing in power and Saul's power is dwindling. And so now we come to another character that we have not really spent any time talking about and that is uh, the character of Jonathan. And if you type in um, famous friendships in Google, uh, this is the first one that comes up, the friendship between Jonathan and David. So he's mostly known in the Bible as a friend. And um, you can kind of think of him as the best supporting actor. And in some ways, the theme of the, the sermon is that we're called to be supporting actors or actresses rather than the, the best actor or the best actress, because that's what Jonathan is. Even though he has all this power, he's the son of the king, he's the prince, but um, he's the heir to the throne. But unlike Saul, he's exactly, he's exactly the opposite of his father. Unlike his father, he's using that power and that status to support david and to support god's ways instead of being jealous he could he would be the the one who would be most likely to be jealous of david and yet he's not and so um this is for the kids but if you ever if you've ever seen how to train a dragon um you have uh, the father is stoic the vast it's a great movie by the way both of them are he is uh, completely unlike his son hiccup and in some ways that contrast is Somewhat similar to what you have with uh, with uh, with uh, Saul and Jonathan, because Stoic is kind of clueless and he's huge and he's vain, and he's ignorant, he's mostly ruling by his strength. But then Hiccup is very, uh, he's kind of wiry, and I see I see Jonathan that way. He's very brave, he's crafty and ingenious and, and resourceful. He, but they're they're very different. And Jonathan uh, kind of like Hiccup has got this like daring, playful uh, kind of sw- swashbuckler type faith. Um, I don't know why uh, Jack Sparrow comes to mind also, but that's another image I have of, of Jonathan, just like that, that type of guy. Um, partly because of the way that he's really a little bit playful in the way he attacks uh, his enemies, the Philistines. There's a great scene back in 1 Samuel 14, and I would encourage you to read it in, um, in the message or the New Living Translation, because then you get more of the nuance of, uh, of the playfulness and the banter in that passage. But... Basically, uh, Jonathan and his, and his armor bearer uh, see this garrison of 20 Philistines way up on the top of this cliff. And uh, they look up there, and uh, the Philistines are mocking God. And so Jonathan and the armor bearer make this deal. Like, I think we can go up there and, and take those guys. And uh, so this is what Jonathan says in First Samuel fourteen six, 6. Uh, and it sounds so much like David. You kind of get the sense that you, you hear how they're... Like, almost like blood brothers in this, uh, what he says. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, let's go up to that outpost. For nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win the battle no matter how few of us there are. And if you think about David and Goliath and then Jonathan right there and these Philistines, same spirit. This passion for God, this trust in God, like zeal, doing crazy things for God, uh, doing adventurous things for God. And so when he meets David for the first time, after David has just killed Goliath, you can imagine how their souls like resonate with each other. And um, he's just completely blown away by the, the zeal of David. And so he makes a covenant with him. And you heard Susie mention that word, but in verse 4 it says that he made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And I kinda, that's what I want to focus on is this, this covenant um, which people are never quite sure what that covenant was. It's not a marriage covenant. It's not a church membership covenant. It's almost like a covenant of friendship. And, um, you know, I don't go around talking about covenants that I've made with people, except for my wife, but uh, perhaps this is a way that we should think about the possibility of a friendship where you've, it's so close that you've made a vow, that it's, uh, there's a bit of a, a promise nature to that friendship. It's not just casual. Um, you know, you could, th- you could think about it as like an accountability friendship where you just you kind of make this uh, this vow. We're going to meet uh, you know, every week and we're going to pray and we're going to share our sins and how to pray for each other, that kind of thing. Uh, it's an intentional spiritual friendship. That's what I would say is going on here. And so I want to look at, uh, first of all, just the kind of friendship in general and then the kind of friendship that is that is centered on God, spiritual friendship. So those are the two things I want to look at, just friendship in general and then spiritual friendship. And it begins uh, with Jonathan um, and David uh, talking, and David is in uh, desperate shape here. So in verse 1, David is about to be killed by Saul, the father of Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't know anything about this. So David fled from Naoth and came and said... he The word before means prostrate. So he's prostrate before Jonathan. He's on his knees, on his face. What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan clearly doesn't know anything about this. So this is kind of a touching detail, but you see how close he is to his father in the way he answers this question. Jonathan's like so confident. Far, far from it. You shall not die. You know, I know my dad. He's a good guy. He would never do that. He says, Behold, my, my father does nothing, either great or small, without telling me everything. We, we, we share everything, my dad and I. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So he's really, really confident about his dad. And then uh, David's like, well, he did throw a spear at me twice. Uh, you know, I don't know why I went back this after the first one, but two times I let, I, I let him another chance, and then he threw another spear at me, so... Um, Jonathan at that point hearing that has this huge decision to make namely am I going to side with Jonathan or am I going to side with my dad and that was like a, uh, a turning point in his life when Jonathan in verse 4 says uh, whatever you say I will do so he trusts him completely he trusts David to that extent uh, that he, he could have gone and turned him in right there And he would have protected the throne. You know, Jonathan would have protected his own throne. But instead he says, whatever you say, I will do. And it really cost him everything. Uh, If you go to verse 30, which um, we didn't read, but it says Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse? That's David. To your own shame. And then he throws a spear at him as well. So he has severed. That relationship. Jonathan has stuck his neck out there. And it has been cut off. And he and his father are estranged. From that point on. And it's because of his loyalty. To David. And I'm not suggesting that you sever. uh, Relationships with your parents. Or anyone because of a friendship. But I'm just saying that it is so strong. Their relationship is so strong. That it. It does run thicker than blood here, that the friendship is, is deeper than even his own blood because of that covenant that he made. And in verse 14, Jonathan says to David, You know, Jonathan has just shown Hesed to David. I mentioned Hesed earlier. It means uh, steadfast love, covenant keeping love, loyal love. And now, after. Jonathan has been so faithful to David and sticking his neck out for him. He says to David in verse 14, now show me the hesed of God that I may not die. And they're very aware that the hesed they're showing to each other is the, the same hesed that comes from God. And I would say that's the Old Testament equivalent of grace, if you're looking for another word. That the reason they're showing this faithfulness to each other is because they got it from God. So he says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, the kind that comes from above, that you received, Jonathan is now asking for that from David. And I love how David is originally desperate for Jonathan's help, but now at the end of the passage, Jonathan being aware that David is going to be the next king, um, because he's so confident in David, he then is desperate for David's help. And so it's that mutual dependence that makes friendships so rich. Because in that kind of mutual dependence, you are kind of throwing yourself into the other person's care. And you're saying, here's my soul. And I, I trust you with my soul. Probably the greatest uh, example of friendship uh, of Hesed in the Bible is, is not, even, not even Jonathan and David, because there's not a whole book written on them. There, but there is a whole book written on another character, female character, who um, a professor of mine has said that um, when you think about loyal love, um, just who comes to mind? Now, who in your life is someone who is taking a hit for you, for instance? The way that uh, Ruth did, the way that Jonathan does. And when you were really acting out and, and like, a, you know, when a, when a hedgehog gets really frightened and threatened, they stick out their quills. So a friend of mine owns a hedgehog, and he's like, if you ever frighten a hedgehog, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really hurt your hand. So they're very prickly. Creatures. And sometimes when we get angry and are acting out, everyone around us feels like the quills come out. And some people, you drive away successfully because you know you're know you kind of intentionally doing that. But there are some people that when the quills go out, they, they keep you in their hand and they don't let you go. And um, I, I, I have mentioned this before. This is kind of a formative story in my identity. And I can't ever get rid of it. I think it can be redeemed, but it will never go away. And I still kind of smell the smell of that day. So in my first day of high school, um, freshman year, of course, I am in the cafeteria line. And while you're going through the line, you're looking at where the tables are that you can sit down. And I was so thankful that I finally saw one with my friends. uh, A guy named Scott is the only guy I remember, the ultimate traitor in this story. And uh, then these other, I, I don't have like a little doll with pins or anything like that I put in Scott, but um, haven't quite gotten over it still. But I sat down with Scott and his friends and they immediately stood up and walked away. And uh, you can imagine with the anxiety, the social anxiety of high school, um, it, just, it really set the trajectory for my entire high school experience. And I've often wondered what if one of those guys had stayed with me and mocked the other guys and told me how stupid they were for doing that. Um, I think the, the call here in this passage to you, and the reason it's in the Hebrew Bible is so you can know that God wants you to do that for someone, or to be that for someone. And obviously not for everyone, but there's, but there's someone in your life where um, you're called to be more than a, the friends kind of friends that you see in the TV show Friends. Um, Joey and Monica and Ross, you know, hanging out in a coffee shop. That is a legitimate form of friendship, uh, where you laugh together, you're cool together, you have the same style of life, same stage of life, uh, same views of life, same relative income, all that stuff. Um, that is great. That's a, that's a spice of life. But it's not what Jonathan and David had, and it's not what, what Ruth and Naomi had. And I think God is calling you to the, a deeper friendship. Because when you're depressed and you can't get out of bed... And you're in your pajamas and it's like 4 p.m., you're not, you're not looking for Chandler to come in your room and cheer you up. Um, you're looking for someone more like Ruth that says, Where you go, I will go, and I'm gonna stick by you. And if you're in a retirement center at 70, uh, you're looking for Hesed. That's what you need um, in those times at the very end of things. And when you're 48 years old and getting chemo because you have stage three cancer, you want. You don't want good times. Um, you want loyalty. You want someone that's going to be right there just sitting by you and praying for you. And so, again, what I'm asking you to do is to think of someone who needs help. And uh, Jonathan is so committed to helping David that he takes a, uh, what we call a self-imprecatory oath. And self-imprecatory just basically means may God kill me. If I don't do this thing, it's a self Uh, imprecation An imprecation is a statement like, uh, may God kill so-and-so. And And this is a self imprecation So in verse 13, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more, if I do not disclose it to you. And what he's saying there is, I am going to disclose everything to you. No secrets at all between us. And um, the riskiest thing of all uh, was already disclosed by David when David said... Your father is trying to kill me. He put his life completely in Jonathan's hands because that was his most vulnerable secret. And so now Jonathan's saying to him, I'm going to tell you not only about what my dad tells me, but about everything. There's not going to be any secrets between us. And in verse 41, uh, you see this total emotional vulnerability that stems from that um, self imprecatory oath. David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed one another and wept with one another David weeping the most and I think that's what happens when you let someone know you is that kind of uh, emotional um, you know, fervor comes out with the kissing, and the weeping, the, the bowing Larry Crabb uh, says, I got this from uh, my friend Daniel Paul, um, no lie is more often believed than the lie that we can know God without someone else knowing us. Now think about the lie, it's not quite what you thought it was going to say. No lie is more often believed than the lie that we can know God without someone else knowing us. So in other words, your, your ability to know God is limited by the amount you're willing to let other people know you. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you haven't really confessed any sin to God if you're not willing to tell another person that sin. You might think you have, but you haven't really. Um, and so this is what Jonathan and, and David have, um, is they are letting themselves be loved by God and known by God by sharing their lives with each other. And that begins to move into the second point, which is not just uh, any old friendship. I think everything I've said so far would apply to any Friendship, But there's a, there's a, now you're moving into more a God-centered friendship. And uh, this would be spiritual friendship. Second point. Which is um, a friendship that is mediated by, uh, by Christ or by the Lord. It's mediated like a mediator. Um, verse 42. The Lord shall be between me and you. And between my offspring and your offspring forever. That's the last words that they ever spoke to each other probably. And um, then they then they went separate ways. But that part, the Lord between me and you, it's kind of like um, there are certain friends you have that are glue friends. And uh, without John, it's hard for me to relate to Bill. But if John's there, then Bill and I can work. You know, those kind of friends, like the glue friend, like they make a group stick together. And I think that the Lord here is between. Uh, David and Jonathan. As close as David and Jonathan are, they would not be such without this third friend, the glue friend, who is the Lord. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Um, I find this fascinating. Christ is the mediator, not just between God and humans, but between two humans. So, as a Christian, I don't have a, I don't have a friendship with another Christian that is not mediated by Christ. Bonhoeffer says, however loving and sympathetic we may try to be, and however frank and open, we cannot penetrate the incognito of the other without God, without Christ. And so what I'm saying is that uh, Jonathan and David know each other only really in God. And it's, uh, it's deeper than watching sports together, although that's great, and meals together, and talking about kids or family or dating, and all those things strengthen a friendship. But... Um, there are certain chambers of your soul, certain hopes and desires that only are opened when it is mediated by God, by your Creator, by the one who knows you perfectly. And I would say that um, the, the friendship here is, is completely based on the shared passion they have for God. That is what knits their souls together. And if you go back to First Samuel 18, 1, uh, this is um this is the contemporary English version. In most versions it says, Jonathan and David's souls were knit together. And they came to love each other as much uh, as... And he came to love David as much as he loved himself. Um, But this is what the contemporary English version says. Jonathan was deeply attracted to David and came to love him as much as he loved himself. And that attraction is not a straight line between the two of them. It's like they're two uh, 45 degree angles going up to God. They're connected by their mutual fascination with God. They're not, they're not smitten by each other. They're smitten by their zeal for God. And this is important because uh, I read a great book called uh, The Secret Cord, which is The Life of David by Geraldine Brooks. And uh, she is a great novelist. But in this novel, they make Jonathan David lovers. And I think that that is for two reasons problematic. One is because uh, the Hebrew Bible doesn't really celebrate that vision of a friendship. And so um, the ancient Jewish wisdom would not celebrate that. Uh, we would, that's, that's us imposing our, our own cultural standards on the scripture. But a more important reason is that it misses the point of the story, which is hesed, and uh, a shared passion for God. So it's kind of, uh, it's like a truncated view of friendship that you would have to make it Sexual, instead of just the possibility of, of, of a relationship with another person, uh, that is through God, can be being very passionate with weeping, and uh, hugging, and even kissing each other, uh, as people, as men and women still do in the ancient Near East. They still do that. I think the Western world is just so kind of frigid that all we know is either like absolutely almost no affection or like sex, and this is giving you a window into another world. Uh, the ancient Near Eastern world. And the best analogy I can think of today, we just don't have many, many images of this today, but two soldiers that have fought in the same war, um, they sometimes can have this kind of bond. Like my father-in-law, who is not a man that cries easily. When, whenever you start talking about Vietnam, and the, especially the guys who flew the helicopters where he was the surgeon uh, in those helicopters, he begins to weep. Uh, because I think the bonds that are created in extremity, when you're, when you're risking your life for someone because of a shared passion, whether it's patriotism or God or whatever it is, uh, that creates uh, this incredible emotional connection. Because in Second in, um, Samuel 1.26, when Jonathan dies, this is what David says. He says, I grieve for you, my brother Jonathan, as he's looking at his dead brother. I mean, he calls him brother. He's not his brother. I grieve for you, my brother Jonathan, greatly beloved. Your love for me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. I'll read that again. I grieve for you, my brother Jonathan, greatly beloved. Your love for me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. And I think what that tells me is that there is a spiritual friendship that can transcend romance. And you you can have that with your husband or wife. But the point is, it's, 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 it's even stronger. It has the possibility of being more powerful than romance. And like I said, we, have such, we, we don't really have a category for this. Um, this would be actually sensual in the sense that there's hugging, weeping, kissing, declarations of love. It is sensual, but it's not sexual. It's, instead, it's a shared passion uh, for the kingdom of God. And for God as the king. And for God uh, who, is, uh, who is beauty and glory and goodness in himself. And uh, there is a, as my professor used to say, there is, a, there is a heat that I know with my wife that is hotter than sex because it is the shared passion and prayer that they had together. And um, so if you're looking for friendship, you look to, the, look to God. Uh, you and the person look to God in his kingdom and serving him and trying to do damage to the empire, a comrade in arms with you. Um, So, like serving the poor or uh, teaching the scriptures or reaching out to lonely people, being a co conspirator uh, to help people come to know Christ. These are things that that bond people stronger than, like I said, shared interests. Uh, The same love of food, the same love of books, whatever it is. Um, There's something unique about the bond uh, where, like, if you go on a mission trip with someone, um, there's something about that bond that is really uh, indescribable or incomparable. Uh, elders that I have pastored with for uh, years, you know, going into the trenches, being with people in extremity and anger and conflict uh, when they're yelling at you, there's a bond there that, uh, there's, that nothing else can really compare to. And uh, even people just coming to pray in the morning, like that, that fuses you in a way that, uh, that not many things can and I want to end with a surprising aspect of this friendship, which is that you think right now that these two guys were about the same age and uh, they were at the same height and um, that they're like roughly the same uh, income level. Or You know, we, we imagine Jonathan and David as these two similar people, like you and your close friend probably are. But David is a teenager um, and Jonathan is at least in his 20s, probably 30s. He's a seasoned warrior. So now, now rethink what I've been talking about in light of that. And then David was a shepherd. He was like a hired musician part-time. He probably uh, was poor. Whereas Jonathan is the crown prince. And David uh, is, is so weak that uh, he can really not even wear armor against Goliath. I'm talking about when they first meet now. And Jonathan is wearing this massive shield. So he's huge. And David's tiny. And then David has a slingshot. And Jonathan has the sword, you know, like the sword of a Lindel or something like that, the sword of kings, uh, the sword of Saul, the sword of the house of Saul. He's wielding that sword. And yet, when David kills Goliath, Jonathan falls to his knees. And it says in 1 Samuel 18:4, he took off his robe, he gave it to David, he took off his armor, he took away his sword. And his bow and his belt, and he gave them all to David. He's essentially giving David the kingdom away. That's right when they meet. That's before chapter 20. And um, the shocking part of that is just how convinced Jonathan immediately is that David is the future. And that David is going to be the king of kings. And it is from David that God will um, bless the entire world with the blessings of Abraham. And so he's so convinced of that that in verse 15, he is actually pleading with David to save his descendants. That's amazing, given the difference in status. Uh, Jonathan says to David, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. And when he says house, he's talking about grandchildren and great-grandchildren. When the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. I mean, that statement is amazing. He's, He's talking to someone who has no prospects, and yet... He's telling someone's about to die, and yet he says, I know that God is going to make you the one who brings down the empire. You're gonna be, be the one or someone in your line that is going to fill the world with the blessings of Abraham. And he he risks everything. He staked, he puts in all his chips on David and on David's house. And he's like, I am in with you. You, you, the anointed one. And in a way, you could say that the gamble failed that he lost all his money because uh, David had, he won some, he won some battles, but his sons became increasingly poor as Kings. And eventually you got to the point on like the 12th generation where they are completely defeated. Uh, The house of David seems to disappear from the face of the earth for 400 years. They go into exile and nobody would even know who the King of Israel is anymore because Israel is such a second rate nation for about 400 years just barely hanging on. But then, um, around 3 BC, the house of David suddenly you know, rises up from the ashes like a phoenix. And the, the great son of David is born, one of the house of David. And uh, he wins every single victory, all the way. He's, uh, he's cutting off all the enemies of sin, and guilt, and death, and hell, and Satan, you know, the entire gamut of the empire. Uh, But he doesn't use any swords. In fact, he tells Peter not to use swords. He's like, that's not the way I do this. That's not the way I win my victories. Uh, He actually does it through uh, the cross and dying um, for enemies. uh, Dying for people who hate him. People who are mocking him and screaming at him. Profanities and abusing him. And yet at the end of his life, as he's on the cross, where he looks totally defeated, he says it is finished. Like, I won the battle. It's it's a really ironic moment that uh, at that moment where he's, like, completely defeated, he's like, it's finished. I won. And, uh, you know, as much as he's talking to God or the people around him, he's also talking to Satan. And he's like, I beat you. And um, this is what the Jesus Storybook Bible says about Hesed. Uh, This is the very first chapter in the Jesus' storybook Bible, which is right over here. And if you're an adult, it, it is an amazing book. And I encourage you to read it. Don't steal one of ours, those are for children. But go home. Um, you can read it after church if you want to. It's very short. But um, put it back in there. But then go home and buy it. God loved them with all his heart. It's talking about Adam and Eve right after they fell. And they were lovely because he loved them. All the stars and the mountains and the oceans and the galaxies were nothing compared to how much God loved his children. He would move heaven and earth to bear them, always, whatever it cost him. He would always love them in spite of everything that happened. God would love his children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreakable, always-and-forever love. And that's probably the tagline of the whole book. And that's the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones defines hesed. She's the author of the book. Never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreakable, always-and-forever love. And that is... um, that is what we celebrate here in this table. Is that there's this, um, this love that is completely unbreakable. And um, no matter how much we do to fight it, it just keeps coming. And you can resist it. He will give you time. Uh, he will let you resist him. And if you are resisting him, if you don't really want to receive this, then I'm really uh, always very clear that you are, there's no pressure to partake. We don't want to force anyone into hypocrisy at all. So, if you're in a place where you really keep feel convicted um, that this is not a good idea for you, like for instance, if you're not if you're not a believer, um, and you know we're we're really glad you're here, but if you're not a believer and you feel uncomfortable about this, then uh, feel no pressure to take. But on the other hand, just remember that God will break down every wall that you put up to Him. Uh, it's a it's a it's a never-ending um, uh, destructive kind of love. And so don't let the fact that you did something terrible today keep you from the table or last night or whenever. Um, If you want this, if you're contrite and you desire God to restore you,